Well, good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Tim Frey, and I'm the middle school youth director here at Mannheim BIC. And I'm really excited to be in the fourth week of our series that we're calling The Gift. And we've been walking through the different themes of Advent. And what I think has been so fascinating about this series is we're looking at peace, love, joy, and hope, and at how they're a gift that we receive because of the gift of Jesus being sent for us. But they often show up in a way that we don't expect. So hope doesn't mean that we're pretending life is perfect all the time, right? We talked a few weeks back about the fact that hope that we have in Christ means that we're fully aware of the challenges we're facing, but we know that we have something deeper to sustain us in the midst of it. We talked about peace and the idea that peace with God affects peace in our relationship with other people. And last week, Pastor Corby talked about joy and the joy that we have being different than a brand new car with a bow on it or than you know, some gift that we can get, but it's a joy that circumstances can't take away from us. And this week, we're gonna look at love and how love often shows up in a different way than we can expect. And God's perfect love is often different from the love we experience from people in our lives. But as I was reflecting on this idea of a gift, and that's why we have this giant present behind me, I wondered, are any of you like me and terrible at giving gifts? Do I have anybody who's like, I'm not a good gift giver? I was nervous. No one would raise their hand. Thank you. I appreciate your honesty. So I am a terrible gift giver. I want to be a good one so bad. Like I want to, I love the part where I'll get the Christmas card. I'll get the big one so I can write this super long note sharing all the things I value about you as a person. And you'll read the note and probably feel loved and cared for. And then you'll open the present and feel very confused. Like, do they actually make that? I did not know that was a thing. Or did you personally make that? Or a seven-year-old. We're really not sure. But it's, it's a process, right? Like, I'm not good at giving a gift. It's not my forte. So I walked around for a long time wondering why that was the case. And uh, in college, I stumbled across this book that's called The Five Love Languages. And it lays out for you kind of different ways that you receive love or give love to other people. And those ways are uh, acts of service, gifts, physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation are the big five. So I took the test at the end of the book, and I did not know this was, a po was possible, but I scored a zero on gifts and a zero on acts of service. Not a 10, a zero on both of those. And I scored in the 30s on words of affirmation and quality time. So I like to say that means I'm a cheap date. You don't need to buy me anything, just spend time with me and tell me I'm pretty, and I'm happy, <laughs> right? Me and my dog are not that different from one another in that way. But think about that, right? I was terrible at giving gifts because I wasn't good at receiving them, right? And I believe when we talk about the gift of love, we cannot give a love to other people that we don't receive from God, right? So if we're receiving a love from God that is not his perfect love, guess what we're gonna give to people around us? That representation of it. So I want us to dig into, we're gonna mainly be in Matthew 2, but we're actually gonna start all the way at the beginning, the first mention of Jesus in scripture, and look at what does God's word say about this perfect love that he has for us. So if you got a Bible, we're gonna be in Genesis chapter three, verse 15 to start. If not, it's gonna be up here on the screen. But this passage in Genesis chapter three is what's called the proto-gospel or the proto-evangel. And it's the first reference to Jesus that we see in scripture. Now, just to paint the picture for a moment of what happens in the book of Genesis and how we get to this point, so God creates everything. He creates Adam and Eve in his own image. They eat from the one tree they weren't allowed to eat from, and sin enters the world. 
And then the next couple chapters have the consequences. So there's consequences for Adam and Eve. Kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Pain in childbirth. They're going to work really hard at the ground and not really produce the fruit and results that they want. And then there's also consequences for the serpent. Because the serpent is the one who tempted them. And we're in chapter 3, verse 15, at kind of the end of those consequences. And I want you to see what happens. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what it says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, I want you to catch something. It is such a subtle change that happens. But it goes from saying between you and the woman to he will crush your head. And that might seem like the tiniest tweak, the tiniest change. But what this verse is saying is that the one that God is going to send, someone from the line of Eve is going to overcome the serpent, is going to overcome evil. This is a pretty crazy verse because all of the Old Testament is a waiting game for that person to show up. All the prophets, all these things, even celebrating Christmas when Jesus comes, it's a waiting game of who is the one that you promised is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, is going to crush evil. Who's going to do it? So it's a pretty big verse that happens. But more than that, I think it's a verse that really shows us something central about God's love. And here's what I think it shows us. It shows us that God's love is an intentional response. Think about it for a minute. Yes, there was a list of consequences that happened, right? There was the fact that Adam and Eve now have consequences. The serpent does. But after all those consequences, there's a rescue plan. God is responding, saying, I'm going to send one who's going to overcome evil. I'm going to send one as a sacrifice. So yes, there's consequences now. Yes, you, you made a poor choice, and there's fruit of that that's not great. But guess what? I have a rescue plan that's coming. And it's so important that we understand that it's a response and not a reaction. Have you ever thought about the difference between a response and a reaction? When you think about love and you think about bringing a hard situation to someone in your life, do you see it as an intentional response when they interact with it? Or do you see it as a reaction? Because with every theme we're going to talk about here this morning, the challenge is we are imperfect people being loved by imperfect people and attempting to love imperfect people. So what that means is no matter how hard we try, at some level we are going to give an imperfect image of God's love. So I wonder if there's someone in your life, it could be a parent, it could be a spouse, it could be a coach, it could be a significant other, who said they loved you and really does love you, but is imperfect and will not always handle every situation perfectly. And when you brought a problem to them, they said, well, you did it now. Well, I don't know what we're going to do now. Good luck. I hope you figure it out. Well, really messed that one up. And sometimes it can take us hearing that one time to believe that God views us the same way. That God reacts to our mistakes, that God reacts to our situations. Here's where that gets really dangerous. God can't love who you pretend to be. He can only love who you really are. Think about that. It's not love if you're bringing a fake version of yourself cleaned up and like you have no problems. And if you believe that God is reacting, you're gonna come to him guarded. You're gonna come to him saying, oh, everything's fine. And forgetting that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. And here's what that means. He is never surprised by your situation. Not for a second. Not for a moment. It's never reactionary with our God. It is an intentional response. 
So yes, there's going to be consequences to our poor decisions sometimes. It might affect a relationship. It might affect a job. It might affect whatever situation for you. But there is always a path of redemption offered. There is always a path back. God always has a response for us if we honestly come to him. Because that's what love is. Love is, this is who I fully am. Good, bad, ugly, quirks, gifts, abilities, all of it. Coming to God and allowing for him to speak into what he wants to transform and and what our path forward is when we hit a hard season or when we make a poor choice. So before we get into our passage this morning, I want you to understand that's the kind of love that we're talking about. God's love is an intentional response to us. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and I'd invite you to turn there. But as you're turning there, I want to lay out for you some background info about this passage. So we're going to talk about the wise men. And this passage opens after the birth of Jesus. So we don't know if that was a few days or up to two years after Jesus' birth when the wise men see the star. And we don't know if it was like a different color star. Was it like a green arrow kind of pointing them where to go? Was there something different about the way it moved? Like we're not entirely sure what was unique about the star, but we know that the wise men took notice and they followed it. Now these wise men weren't of Jewish culture. They weren't Israelites. They wouldn't be followers of God. They were from Persian culture and followed prophets who saw the world differently. They saw it mainly from a scientific lens, a diplomatic lens, and some mysticism in that as well. But more than anything else, these wise men studied the stars. That's what they were known for. They were known for being people that were aware of the movements of the stars and that followed it. Now, when the wise men saw this star, it's believed that they went on a journey of about 800 to 900 miles, which back in those days, it was about 20 miles a day, depending on how you're feeling, how your animals are feeling to be able to get where you need to go. That would have taken about 40 to 50 days estimate. And then there was also the process of them getting their affairs in order because the wise men were highly esteemed in Persian courts and that whole journey. So we believe it was anywhere from 40 to 50 days to four months that it took them to get to Jerusalem. And that's kind of where we're going to pick up in the story. We're not exactly sure how many wise men. We always go with three because there was three gifts presented. And we would logically assume that each wise man would bring and worship something for a king. So let's dive in. Matthew chapter two. We're going to look at the wise men first in this story. So now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So maybe you've heard that passage before as we saw his star in the east and this translation looks at it as we saw it when it rose. We're not exactly sure how the star appeared to them, but our belief is that the wise men saw it and noticed it as it came up. And I want you to consider for a minute how Jesus makes his entrance into the world. Because I think it's pretty countercultural. I think it's part of this kind of upside down kingdom of God that, that's pretty crazy. So we've been waiting hundreds of years, all the way since Genesis 3. We've been waiting for a Messiah. We've been waiting for a Savior. When are they going to send one? And for a lot of people, they thought that Jesus was going to come riding a horse, lightning bolts in both hands, flipping over Roman oppression, and clearing everything out and putting them back in charge. That's not exactly how he comes. He comes as the most needy, (laughs) weak form of humanity in many ways. 
Babies are an incredible gift. But if you think about power, you don't think of coming as a baby, right? So he chooses to come in that form, which is crazy. And he doesn't come with fireworks and like the whole world having a party that he's here. He could have deserved that. But he appears to a group of people that are not even Israelites, that are not even his followers through a star. And here's what I think he does. He invites them to a journey. And that's the second thing. God's love is a patient invitation. God's love invites us to a journey of following after him. A lifelong journey of that. And that's what the wise men do here. They take a part of this journey. They see this star. It gets their attention. They believe that it's from whoever the king of the Jews is. They don't know who that is, but they believe that's who it is. So they go to follow. But here's why that's super important. Because I think in this world where we're imperfect people, loving imperfect people, I think we can sometimes believe that love is a forceful thing. That love is forced on, that I have to do it. I'm forced to go to church. I'm forced to be in this situation. And real love requires a choice. And beyond that, we're missing the depth of what it means to come to church and be a part of God's community in that. God is not a forceful God. He's an invitational God. He's very, don't get me wrong, all powerful, but invites us to be a part of his journey. What would it look like for us if we viewed church as a place that we get to be a part of what it means to follow after God with his people? How cool is it that God gives us his power and his people to do life with and to figure this out and to go on the journey together? God doesn't force his love on us. He invites us to receive it and invites us to a journey, which is what happens for the wise men. Now, we're going to move on to verse 3, which talks about King Herod. So it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, that might seem like a small verse, but it packs a lot into it. So King Herod, when it says he was troubled, that's not a strong enough word for what he was feeling. They would take it to the word of distressed, in angst. Like, imagine troubled to the 10th degree. That's what he's feeling in this moment. And when it says all Jerusalem was with him, King Herod was one of those people that maybe you've been around that when they're in a bad mood, everyone's in a bad mood, right? When he was upset, you knew about it. So when King Herod was not having a good day, everybody was aware of that. So that's what it means that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. But it offers the question, well, why is he troubled by the wise men coming and saying, we've come to worship this king of the Jews? Like, wouldn't Herod be excited by that? But here's what you need to understand about King Herod. He was an Edomite. So he was not an Israelite. He was not in Jewish culture. He was not a descendant that was given the throne. He was put in power by the oppressing Romans because they knew that he was very good at engineering, very good at building buildings. He was very good financially. So they put him in power because of that. But he was not from that culture. So I believe that King Herod had this constant case of imposter syndrome. Here's what I mean by imposter syndrome where he felt like his role and status was going to be taken from him in a moment. That he could lose it all any minute because the Romans put him there, not God. In his mind, the Romans put him in power and now this king was coming to take it. But I don't think Herod's the only one that can feel imposter syndrome sometimes. I think we can feel that. We can feel that when we're leading a small group or teaching Sunday school. We can feel that when we're with our family. When we're like telling... Maybe you're telling your kid, hey, why are you getting so upset about that? And then they're like, uh, I watched you watch the Eagles last week. Uh, little, 
little iffy there, right? A little, I don't know. Or you can look at your own things that you have not figured out in your own heart and in your own life and say, I don't deserve to be in this position. And you can take it a step further. You can say, I don't deserve God's love. And here's what we need to be careful of. King Herod was insecure and threatened in how he understood his relationship with God. But here's the beautiful truth that we have. God's love is unconditional and secure. So if we think about the idea that we don't deserve it, correct. We've conditionally done nothing to make it happen. And I love Romans 5.8. I think it lays it out super clear. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 5 is full of awesome passage about love. I would encourage you to read that entire passage. But it summarizes it where it says, here's how God shows us his love. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Think about what that means. While you were at a state where you could do nothing to change your own condition, where you could do nothing to free yourself from it, where you couldn't change it, God said, you're worthy of my son dying for you there. That's powerful. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. That's the kind of love that is unconditional, that is secure. Condition would mean that we did something to add to it and make it happen. The beauty that we have is all we can do is receive it, follow after it, and be changed by it. Think about how different that feels to understand that God didn't send his son to die for us because of the best thing we could ever do. You know, sometimes I think we can think that, oh, you know, God loves me more because I, we had devos as a family tonight, or because I did that Sunday school thing, or I listened to worship music, or I read my Bible today, or I prayed today. And what this verse is actually saying is like, not at your best, not at your highlight faith moment, not when you just got off a mission trip or just came back from a retreat, but actually at that place you can't believe you went to. That thing you can't believe you saw, thought, said, that's the place that he's looking down and saying, I want my son to die for you there. So it's unconditional and here's why it's secure. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit ahead in the Christmas story. So Jesus comes and he dies for us. And that was an event that really happened that cannot be undone. That fully covered our sin, overcame death, gave us eternity with God and life to the fullest now. That was a real thing that really happened that nothing can undo. So we have full security that it's not like one day Jesus is gonna be like, psych, that wasn't real. Or actually, ah, it was everything but your sin that you had in your past. Instead, he's saying it's an unconditional, secure offering that we can accept. God's love is secure and unconditional. It's not threatened. It's not something we get worthy of in some way. And I think King Herod missed it because he constantly felt like he wasn't worthy. The truth is you are worthy because of God creating you and sending his son for you, not because of some great thing you did one time. That's an incredible love. I want to go to verse four, verses four to six, and I want to talk about the scribes and the chief priests. And these, these are two characters, if I'm honest, in the Christmas story that I haven't typically focused on, but really caught my attention this week. So King Herod, like I said, did not grow up an Israelite, did not grow up understanding Jewish prophecy and tradition. So he goes to the chief priests and the scribes and he asks them about it. And here's what it says. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, 
In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So we don't know if the chief priests and the rulers like quoted this back to Herod or if they had to like search through old scriptures to find it because there was hundreds of years where they had kind of felt like God went silent. There wasn't prophecy. They weren't sure what was going on before this event. But whichever way that fell for them, I want you to consider something. They are literally quoting a prophecy that is happening in front of them in real time that was promised hundreds, thousands of years ago and nothing changed in them. Like for me, I'm like, well, why didn't you go with them? Like if you've been waiting for this savior and even if you had forgotten about it, you read it right in front of you and you just stayed there unchanged by it. That's fascinating to me. And here's why I think that happened. They had a type of love that was theoretical. God doesn't offer us a theoretical love. He offers us an experiential love. His love for us is meant to be experienced in relationship with him. Not just a theoretical thing that it would be great if this was true. Or let me know all the right verses or all the right scriptures. I've read every commentary and done every devo and all that's great. By the way, God's word is a tremendous gift that we stand on and find truth in. But it is that and a relationship with him. That's the point to be experienced. And I think what is challenging about knowing and love in our language and our culture is we only have one word for it. Where other cultures and languages actually use multiple. So I minored in Spanish. I I don't know much now, but I did minor it in college. And I thought it was fascinating. They have two different words for to know. And I wanna kinda give you guys a very, very brief Spanish lesson here this morning. So there's two of them. The first one is conocer which means to be familiar with, to know well. So you would conocer a person or a place that's special to you. And the second one is saber, which is to know facts about something. So think about that. There's a difference between knowing facts about something and being familiar with it, knowing it well, knowing it intimately in relationship. And I think sometimes we lose that distinction That God doesn't just want us to know facts about him. He came and sent his son to have relationship with us. That that's how we can experience love, experience his goodness, experience his grace, experience all of those things. I really like in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, it speaks to some of the same idea of what it means to know the Lord. And uh, the Hebrew word in there is yada, which is talking about like a different type of knowing. It's more of a relational knowing. And here's what it says, Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So I want you to see this. It changes from saying, when I want people to know the Lord, we won't have to talk about it anymore. Still, we still talk about it. We still discuss it. But it will be deeper than that. They will forgive. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. True knowledge of God comes from him forgiving our sins, experiencing his grace, experiencing his love, experiencing his goodness. And what I think is so cool, uh, part of, I went to a Christian college that, where we learned Spanish. So we had like a Spanish Bible and we learned to pray in Spanish and, and those things. And if you look at that word for to know, it uses conocer. 
So it talks about this relationship knowing God. God wants to experience relationship with us, not just have a head knowledge, factual way that we think about it. That love is different. It's one thing to be able to look at the person next to you and say, God died for your sins. It's very different to look at yourself and say, God died for mine. And I've experienced that goodness. I've experienced that grace. It changes the game. It changes everything in many ways. So God's love is experiential. Well, let's see how this ends for the wise men. Let's go to verse seven. Matthew chapter two. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he goes to the wise men, kind of pulls them aside because he's curious about how they saw the star, when it was, what happened. And he says, he sent them to Bethlehem, which by the way, Bethlehem was probably about six miles from Jerusalem. So it's probably about a quarter of a day to travel there for the wise men. He says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. King Herod had ulterior motives there, right? He didn't want to worship this king of the Jews. He wanted to kill him before he was an adult. He wanted to take him out when he was a baby, when it was a lot easier to do that. So it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. How cool is that, by the way, for the wise men? Right, so the star starts moving again and they're following it. And when they saw the star again and they saw it stop at this house, because remember, we're far enough along that Jesus would have been in a house with Mary and Joseph at this point. They start celebrating. There's a rejoicing. This journey has gone from a, well, we're going along (laughs) to, man, how cool is it that they get to keep following after God? They get to keep, they don't even know what this is, but they're going. There's a joy to it. It starts to shift for them. Verse 11 says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So we don't know if they're worshiping this child because they think he's some powerful king or if they fully understand that this is the son of God. We, we don't know that. But what I think is so pure in this moment is they just worship God with what they understand worshiping God to look like. So for them, if they're gonna go worship a king, they would present gifts and they would bow down. So they come before this child and they present gifts and they bow down and worship. How pure and authentic is that of what it looks like to follow after Jesus? To bring gifts, present, and worship. Now, gold, frankincense, and myrrh would not have been a common item for every person, but it was common, it was easily accessible for the wise men because of their status. And here's what's crazy. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh would be very important for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in the very next verse, in verse 13, because it says that King Herod's trying to kill all the kids under two years old, so they had to flee. And guess what helped sustain them when they fled? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How crazy is that? These aren't even disciples. These are wise men who followed a star, showed up somewhere and were like, God, here's what I have to offer. I'm worshiping, here's all I got. And God used it to provide for his son. That's crazy, right? That's incredible. If those wise men can just come and present it, how much more can we, right? How much can't we just present what we have? That's so amazing that we get to do that, that we get to see that. And then watch what happens to the wise men in verse 12. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The wise men left different after they encountered Jesus, right? They went home a different way. They were warned to not go back to where King Herod was. And I believe the same thing happens when we encounter the authentic and real love of God. We go home different. We live different. We share it with other people different. So the last thing I want you to know this morning about God's love is it is demonstrated in a transformative action. It was demonstrated in a moment that forever changed eternity and forever changed our here and now. But beyond that, it continues to transform us. Because when we realize that we are perfectly loved by God and we understand in new ways what that looks like, it changes us. We walk different. We follow him different. We love people around us different. What I love about the wise men is they were transformed and it benefited people around them, not just themselves. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it this way. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And I hope you hear that verse for what it really is. It's not some you need to change, shape up verse. It's that, hey, when you really experience God, when this love about this gift that came down at Christmas that we're gonna celebrate next week, when, when you realize that that was love for you, that it was intentional, that it was real, that it was a response, that it's unconditional, it changes you. You start following after it differently. You know, I was reflecting this week on when people started to kind of give me opportunities to jump into what it meant to serve in the church. And I was baptized as a, you know, as a second or third grader. And then like most of us in middle school or high school, I kind of, faith started to make sense to me more. And I remember uh, in ninth grade, I went away on a, like a week-long retreat with my youth group. And I got in really close with the worship team kids. So they were seniors on the worship team. And I decided, I love worship music. I'm gonna join the worship team. One problem, um, I can't carry a tune. I can't find a tune. I don't know when to come in on a song. So I did it for a year. And what would happen is they would, I would speak in between the songs, like, oh, this verse tells me about it. I would do the, I don't know if you guys remember the old I am free song, but I'm free to run. I would dance, I would jump around. I had that. And then when it came time to sing, they would mute my microphone. <laughs> Whoops. But after that, so that was crazy. I was excited. Here's my gifts. I'm ready to go. Here we go. Oh, not great. So then I go away the next year on a mission trip and we're in, a, we're in Northern Ireland and we're at a church and my youth pastor had kind of seen that I liked talking in between songs and he was like, hey, you should do the children's chat. And I had, a, I had a great idea. We were talking about being filled up with God's love. So I got a balloon and I got it filled up and you know the cool thing where you release it and it's like filled up is what it means to have God's love. And if you don't, you're like a flat balloon, right? Or deflated balloon. I was so excited. On my way up there to give the children's chat, I learned that one of the small children who was two or three years old is deathly afraid of balloons. So I'm up there and I'm getting to the crescendo of my two minute children's chat. This is my moment. And I release the balloon. And have you ever had time stand still for a minute? And you're like, whoops. And I watch it go directly at the face of that small child. And I watch her sprint out of the back of the room. And I watch her mom sprint out of the back of the room. And I'm wondering like, are we getting kicked out of the country? Like, I'm not really sure what we're doing here. Anyway, then I did what, if you guys ever need to know how to get out of a situation, we're gonna pray now. That's how I closed it. That's how we ended it. But then I go back to my church and my children's director two weeks later says, hey, Tim, I heard you do children's shots. 
I said, did you hear what happens <laughs> when I do? She's like, I don't think we're allowed back there. But she gave me the opportunity to do that. And then I got to go to a summer camp and work with students and learn that I had a passion for middle schoolers. And it was just this process of here's my gifts. I don't know how to use them, but, I, but here they are. Keep transforming them. And here's what's even crazier. Every person that saw something in me, God changed their life and they invested in me, right? They had something to offer me because they had experienced this love. When I think about my youth pastor, when I think about our children's director, when I think about the camp staff I got to work with, their life was forever changed by a real, tangible, unconditional, perfect love of God. And they offered that. And it wasn't just for them, it was for me too. And that's really the heart here. That's the heart behind knowing. It's not a legalistic, guilt-driven, understand God's love or else. It's a God wants to use your life to impact someone else. And the type of love you receive is the type of love you're gonna give. So my encouragement to you is, Christmas is in eight days. Crazier than that, 2024 is in 15 days. Just said that out loud for the first time. That's pretty, anyway, pretty crazy. What would it look like for you to reflect and consider what parts of this love maybe you've misunderstood and there's something deeper? What would it look like for you to love your family different, for you to love your community different, for you to love your friends different as you experience God's love in a different way? We're gonna close with a song. I am not gonna sing the song. Our team is gonna close with a song um, called Love Came Down. And what I think is so incredible about this song is it says, love came down and rescued me. That one moment where God forever changed everything. But it also says, love came down and set me free. God didn't just give us an eternity with him. He wants to free us from those things now. He wants us to experience more of his love now. And that's what we're gonna sing about in just a moment. Before we do, would you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you and praise you for the gift of your love. Lord, I thank you that it's not a reactionary love. It's a responsive, patient invitation. Thank you for sending Jesus, that we have a reason to celebrate Christmas. We have a reason to celebrate that. Thank you for the way his life changed everything. And Lord, I just pray that you would just show in us where we can experience your love deeper. Not just in theory, not just it would be nice if, but really know what it means to be loved by you. Love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.